All right, everybody. Welcome to Sunday School. Good to see you all. Filling in for Elder Lewis today. We're going to be covering question 44 of the larger catechism. Uh, should have a handout. You can follow along. Feel free to uh, turn to those passages. We're going to spend a lot of time in Hebrews today. But I welcome readers. Come on in, come on in. Morning. Morning. And let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer. Our great God and Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you for this day. Day you set aside that we can come and remember your goodness towards us, the salvation we have because of our great high priest, even our Lord Jesus Christ. Send your spirit now, Lord, to work in us, to teach us uh, from your word, pierce us to the division of soul and spirit, uh, that we may grow into maturity. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right, so Larger Catechism 44. We'll, as usual, recite this together. How doth Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executeth the office of a priest in his once offering himself a sacrifice without spot to God to be a reconciliation for the sins of the people and in making continual intercession for them. Very good. So we did prophet last week. Elder Lewis did prophet. Now we're looking at Christ's priesthood. So we could start there. What is a priest? Any ideas? Any uh, just off the top of your head? Someone in service to God. Very good. Very good definition. Happy with that one. Yes? Uh, intermediary. Mediator. Mediator. Very good. Yep. Intermediary. Intermediary. Um, yeah, I have a Zondervan Bible dictionary. It's pretty keeps it pretty simple. Um, it says, a priest is one authorized to perform rites of religion. Okay, uh, Merriam-Webster, I know we don't get our definitions from the world, but it's pretty good. Someone who is authorized to perform the sacred rites of a religion, especially as a mediatory agent between humans and God. But let's turn to Scripture. Our first text will be Hebrews 5, and see what our God has to say about high priests in particular. Hebrews 5, 1 through 10. Honey, you want to take that one? Nice and loud. 1 through 10? Yep. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices to sin. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so as for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. 
no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Just as Aaron was. So, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also said in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things of which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest. Thank you. So first, from this text, we see that a high priest is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, from which we agree with Merriam-Webster in that a priest is a mediatorial agent between men and God. He stands between man and God. Notice also that the high priest was representative of the people. Jesus, as the second Adam and great high priest, represented his people. He was appointed for sinners in things pertaining to God, his Father. And just the remainder of verse 1, we find the purpose statement of a high priest. That that word there, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. A high priest performed sacred rites, yes, from that general definition, but in particular, he offered sacrifices for sins. Next, we'll discover that the priesthood is bestowed. Right? It says, and no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God just as Aaron was. So God the Father declares, right, we see this, of Jesus the Christ, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus didn't take this upon himself. He was appointed and called by God as high priest to represent his people, and in order to perform the ultimate offering, Jesus was appointed high priest to represent his people, and in order to perform the ultimate offering. That is, the sacrifice of himself for sin. So our next text will be Hebrews 4, 14 and 15. Somebody get that one? I got it. Right. <clears throat> Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yes, now we come to the next, the phrase in our catechism answer, 
yet without sin. Or as without spot. It says without spot to God. Children, did Jesus ever sin? No. Good answer. Go ahead and turn to Exodus, uh, Exodus 12. We're going to read verse 5, but remember the context here. God has remembered his covenant with Abraham. He's been acting in order to bring his people out of the house of bondage in Egypt. He has plagued Egypt up to this point through the hand of his servant Moses. And he's about to enact one final plague by slaying the firstborn in all the land. Moses gives instructions to the house of Israel on this first Passover night. And we find in verse 5 a phrase of vast importance regarding the Passover lamb. Who's there? Verse 5. Without defect. Without blemish. Why a lamb without blemish? Well, in order to signify, to point to Jesus, right? The spotless lamb was a type and shadow pointing to Christ. The spotless lamb was a type and shadow pointing to Christ. The blood over the doorposts, signifying a particular household's covering, right? they're covered, they're protected, so that the angel of death would not would pass by or pass over, not harm those inside. This blood pointed to the blood of our Savior, the blood of Jesus. And we see this language all throughout Leviticus, even the rest of the Old Testament. Animal sacrifices, yes, animal sacrifices. The shedding of blood, yes. But there was a requirement that the animal be without blemish. And John the Baptist comes on the scene, and what does he say of Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The high priests were to offer spotless animal sacrifices. If Jesus was to be the ultimate sacrifice for sin, and indeed a perfect high priest who had no need to offer atonement for himself, as every other high priest had to do, then Jesus had to meet the requirement of being without blemish, without sin, or again, as the Catechism states, without spot. Jesus was indeed the Lamb of God, come on the scene as the great high priest to offer a spotless sacrifice to God, even his own body. Here in 1 Peter 1, I'm going to read 18 and 19 there. It just reinforces what we're saying so far. First Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, 
but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Children, what can wash away your sins? That's right, nothing else. The precious blood of Christ. In Ephesians 5, we catch a glimpse of this language again, except it's speaking of us, speaking of the bride of Christ. Listen to this, verse 27, that he might present her, that Jesus might present his bride to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. What a picture. Right? Our great high priest, holy and without blemish himself, the spotless Lamb of God, came to give himself up willingly for his bride, for us, even the joy set before him, that we might be holy and without blemish. The priesthood of our Savior is matchless. He far surpassed all the priests that came before him. And now we'll read Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. Let's see how much he surpasses all those priests that came before him. Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. Chad. All right. <laughs> Yes. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Good, very good. Thank you. So, he's a greater high priest, he's the mediator of a better covenant. And so, Jesus, because of this, abolishes. Levitical priesthood. It's no longer necessary. He's far surpassed it. He's come to put it to an end. Hebrews 8.13 says, in that he says a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. Turn to 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Well, you turn there, but what if we have this concept of the priesthood of all believers, right? Surely you've heard this term. So Jesus has abolished the Levitical priesthood, but what does it mean that we are priests? Let's read 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Okay, see there?
Notice just from that short section, the emphasis. You were not a people of God, now you are. You did not have mercy, now you have it. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Hold those thoughts. And I'm going to read from the Council of Trent, which the Roman Catholic Church confesses. Uh, It is in your outline, I think. Section 23, chapter 1, if you want to look it up. But listen to what the Roman Catholic Church confesses. And the sacred scriptures show, and the tradition of the Catholic Church has always taught, that this priesthood, and that's their clergy being priests, right, was instituted by the same Lord our Savior, and that to the apostles and their successors in the priesthood was the power delivered of consecrating, offering, and administering his body and blood. Of course, we're talking about the Lord's Supper there, but right here. And also of forgiving and retaining sins. So there's a tension here between the Apostle Peter's declaration that all believers are priests to some extent. Peter's not just talking to the clergy. And Rome, which teaches that only the clergy are priests and even have the ability to forgive sins. So which is it? All right. Well, consider everything we read from the scriptures so far. Consider this context of 1 Peter chapter 2. Does it seem plausible at all that the scriptures are teaching there's a a continued need for a priesthood that involves sacrifices for sin? No, we read Jesus is better, he's greater, he's done away with that. Mediation between God and man, he he has done The Apostle Peter obviously means something different when he says we are a royal priesthood. None of us are offering atoning sacrifices, nor should any Roman Catholic priest. R.L. Dabney speaks to this in his systematic theology. I'm going to quote him here. These traits, and this is everything we've talked about so far, right? The traits that we talked about with Christ being better and greater. These traits are conclusive of his real priesthood. He was appointed priest with peculiar emphasis, a special kind of priesthood, high priesthood. He made his soul a sacrifice for sin by dying. While Christians, when described as metaphorical priests, he says, only make their services a thank offering by living. And he cites Romans 12.1, well-known passage by all of us, I'm sure. If not, go memorize it. Uh, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Or other translations, spiritual worship. So we offer living sacrifices with our lives and bodies. Loving God, loving neighbor, offering praise and thanksgiving to God, and approaching our God boldly in prayer. Dabney also goes on to show how gospel ministers are never described as priests. 
but instead teachers, shepherds, presbyters, ministers. No Christian offers sacrifice for sin any longer. There is no need or biblical basis to view the Mass or Eucharist as an actual sacrifice offered up for sin because our great high priest has done this already. Which leads us to our next point. How many times did our Lord Jesus have to offer himself up? Uno. Uno. <laughs> That's right. Christ executed the office of a priest in his once offering himself as sacrifice without spot to God. Hebrews 7, 26 and 27 There's a lot of texts that support this, by the way. Um, these are just a few. Somebody have Hebrews 7, 26, 27? Go ahead. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, that he has no need like those high priests, who offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he was offered up himself. Once for all. And just flip over a couple pages, Hebrews 9, 25 to 28. You there, Max? <laughs> got you off guard. Go ahead, Sam. Oh, Gabe's got it. Our Lord Jesus offered himself once. He made a glorious once-for-all sacrifice to put away sins. His sacrifice was all-sufficient, and it accomplished what he set out to do. So again, listen carefully to what Rome confesses in Trent, Session 22, Canon 3. If anyone saith that the sacrifice of the Mass is only a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, or that is a, a bare commemoration of the sacrifice consummated on the cross, and not a propitiatory sacrifice, or that it profits him only who receives, or that it ought not to be offered for the living and the dead for sins, pains, satisfactions, and other necessities, let him be anathema. Don't miss it. Rome is teaching that the Mass is a propitiatory sacrifice. Indeed, that say the Mass is a, sac is a sacrifice that actually takes away sins. 
Church, to believe this is to attempt to steal glory from Christ. To believe this is to say Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice was not enough. On the contrary, Jesus' death was the one and only propitiatory sacrifice. Now, let's look at the nature of the atonement. We're not going to go into everything here because there's a whole question dedicated. Um, But let's look at this. Children, this is a harder one, but I wanted to give you a chance here. This is from the Children's Catechism. What is meant by the atonement? Any takers? We're not there yet. Okay, that's okay. (laughs) It's in the 40s or 50s. Step it up, Elder Lewis. We're getting there. We're not there yet. All right, the Children's Catechism answer says Christ satisfied God's justice by his suffering and death as a substitute for sinners. And we're actually going to turn to the shorter catechism for this next section because for some reason it's left out, this phrase is left out in the larger answer, which I found puzzling. But, uh, so just going back, it, it's, it's very similar language, but the shorter catechism answer to the same question that we're on, um, how, does, how does Christ execute the office of a priest? It says, Christ executed the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice, and this is the part that's left out, to satisfy divine justice, which is left out in the larger catechism. But that's what I want to look at. Without the satisfaction of divine justice, there is no forgiveness of sin. Let's turn to Romans 3, 23 through 26. Whoever's ready, go ahead. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over the one sin. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Very good. Divine justice has to be satisfied. God cannot overlook sin. He is infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice. It's there goodness and truth. He has to exact perfect justice in order to be good. His goodness or mercy towards sinners is only just if the penalty for their sin is paid for. Notice from the text in Romans 3 that God passed over the sins of his Old Testament saints. Well, how did he do this? Only because he decreed that his divine justice would be satisfied in his Christ who was to come. He's going to pass over for now. 
but justice will be had. It was a temporary passing over. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to satisfy his holy justice toward the people, toward his people of times past, his people in times present, and his people in times to come. Remember, Old Testament saints were justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Christ who was to come. And New Testament saints are justified by faith alone, in Christ, by, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ who came, who accomplished. In this way, God is the justifier, from Romans 3 again, of all who have faith in our Lord Jesus, whichever side you fell on. Sinners are reconciled to God through the propitiatory work of Christ alone. Propitiation, we've mentioned this a couple times already, um, but it's an extremely important theological term. In his monumental work, Knowing God, J.I. Packer unpacks it really well. Um, He would define propitiation as the putting away of sin and the appeasement of the wrath of God. Not just the putting away of sin. Um, so propitiation is God's being appeased, his justice satisfied, the sin's gone. Both, both things. And we see this language in Scripture. He was pierced for our transgressions. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. Hebrews 2.17, you can turn to Isaiah 53 as I read this. Therefore, in all things, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Why? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Notice all the substitutionary references in these texts. For our, for, substitutionary atonement. Notice them again as we read probably the most famous, the text that converted me, Isaiah 53, 4 through 12. A little longer. I'll read this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. For those transgressions, he was stricken. 
and when they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, no sin. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. There's the justifying. Why? For he shall bear their iniquities. He's able to justify because he bore their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he has poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Our Lord Jesus satisfied divine justice by bearing the full weight of the wrath of God on Calvary. Church, may this message never become old to us, for it indeed is the heart of the gospel, Christ crucified for sinners. Now let's turn to Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. One final look at Jesus' work being finished. One, one through three, yes. God at various times and in various ways, in contrast to the fathers by the prophets, as in these last days spoken to us by his son, that he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, through being the brightness of his glory and the expression of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself said those things, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Thank you. When he had by himself purged our sins, purged, past tense, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It is finished, he said. He's, he's seated, it is done. His propitiatory work, that is our Lord Jesus, was completed, and he has brought reconciliation between God and man. So we come to the next phrase of the catechism answer. Christ executed the office of a priest in his once offering himself a sacrifice without spot to God to be a reconciliation for the sins of the people. And this is where we're at. And in making continual intercession for them. Uh, Hebrews 7, 23 through 25. So this is Christ's ongoing priesthood. He has completed his work in that sense that we've just discussed. Propitiation, abolishing the Levitical priesthood, being without spot, living a perfectly righteous life for us. And he's an ongoing priest for us. Hebrews 7, 23 through 25. 
Travis. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for us, his people. For us in this room, we've been gathered from all over, all over the place. Our Lord Jesus makes continual prayer for us at the right hand of God his Father. Church, let's remember this well. When we're tempted to give into our flesh, to do those things against the will of our good and gracious God, when we're tempted to doubt his goodness, Amidst the storms and roaring billows of life, amidst the hard providences that come our way, remember, Jesus is praying for us. It's remarkable just to remember that. He's praying for us in all those times, all the time. He will strengthen us, he will help us, he will uphold us with his righteous right hand. And we're going to close with Hebrews 10, 19 through 23. Yep. I got it. All right. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Very good. Again, may we have boldness because of our great high priest's past work and his present work. He holds us. He keeps us. He tore away the veil for us. Let's hold fast our confession, run our race, fight our fight. And remember, the same Spirit who raised him from the dead, he pours out on us. This is a great high priest we have. We don't have a need for another. So, any questions? <laughs> I'm giving you a lot of chance. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, go ahead. You guys no. Great lecture. Um, I just want to uh, thanks for bringing up uh, the uh, thing on Rome. The talk about Rome. I'm just gonna. Uh, I just want to add to that. Um, this is why another reason why Rome is so dangerous with the mass. Um, it is this, this issue of transubstantiation. Uh, the fact that Christ is re-sacrificed in the mass every time they do it is so dangerous. Um, it is idolatry of the highest order. Um, this is why you cannot attend the Mass. Um, you cannot be a part of it. Um, for those who don't know, this is why the priest drinks all of the wine. They don't pour it down the drain. Mm -hmm. uh, because they truly believe that that is Christ's blood. Yeah. And so they can't pour it down the drain. It actually turns into Christ's blood. Uh, they, don't, they don't pour it down the drain. 
because they believe that that would be actually pouring Christ's blood down the drain. Um, so, do not, do not attend the Mass. Very, very dangerous. It is idolatry. And here I thought that was just the Irish priest. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Very dangerous. In fairness, Mr. Tejada, Tejada did not know I was going to be in here this morning. <laughs> <laughs> So, you had mentioned that uh, saints on this side of the cross are saved by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Mm -hmm. But then you also said that saints of the Older Testament were saved by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. So, are you telling me that Moses and David and Noah and Abraham were Christians? That's right. <laughs> There's not different dispensations. They, they were of... <laughs> not saved by falling along? <laughs> no. Okay. Right. Moses considered the reproach of Christ better than the riches of Egypt. A lot of Bible churches no. might need the Bible on this one. <laughs> Abraham longed to see Christ's day. Right. Yes? Did any Old Testament sacrifices forgive sins? No. Right. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away. But they pointed to that Christ to come. So that in that offering, the saints were looking past the type, past the shadow, to the Christ who has to come. I see the significance of this offering. I see the significance of this blood being shed for my sin. And I'm looking not to this, but to Christ. Another thing about the Roman Catholic thing um, also still think that you have to go to purgatory for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why masses for the dead. Right? You get more merit for these dead saints who are in purgatory. We're going to buy them out. Indulgences is all still there. Anything else? Some discussion going on over here. All right, well, let's pray. Lord our God, Lord our Lord, you are majestic. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, you are the good, good Father who did in the fullness of time send your most precious Son to be our great high priest. And, O oh Lord, may we marvel and wonder at his work, at his finished work, at his putting away all of our sins, satisfying your perfect divine justice. May we ever live to give you praise for such a great salvation. And Lord, you have not left us 
Would you give us your spirit? Jesus, you are indeed at the right hand of God praying for us. Oh Lord, strengthen us, embolden us to be salt and light in this world, uh, to declare your praises, to declare your excellency. Lord, help us to worship you today in spirit and truth. May we keep these things on our minds. May we be cleared of distractions as we sing your praises and hear from your word. Lord, bless our pastor and his preaching to us. And bless us by the sacrament, Lord, as we feed on you by faith. Not a re-sacrifice, but a strengthening of our souls. We pray all this in our great high priest's name, in Jesus' name. Amen.